Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Our text from the Holy Gospel, these words of St. John, but Thomas called Didymus, or the twin, one of the twelve was not with them when Jesus came. And so the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord, but Thomas replied, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger in the mark of the nails and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. This is our text, dear friends in Christ. The poor disciple Thomas, at least that's what we might perhaps think, because doesn't it appear that throughout the ages history has treated him so unkindly? It almost seems, in fact, that the church has never really forgiven Thomas for this one-week lapse of faith that he had after the resurrection of our Lord that's reported in our text for today. Even though he was a believer before these events took place, even though he was a believer after this lapse of faith that he had, even though he made one of the most concise and clear and unambiguous confessions of faith, despite all of those things, it still seems that he's remembered by the world as doubting Tom. We even get the phrase that we use to refer to people, doubting Tom, because of this event and because of doubting Thomas. And yet as we consider the story, we might find that in many respects he resembles the person next to you in the pew. And he resembles you. And he resembles me. Thomas doubted. So all too often have we. Thomas believed. So do we. The gospel tells us precious little about the apostle Thomas, St. Thomas. He's little more than a name indeed midway through the list of disciples when the list of disciples is given twice in scripture. Perhaps he had a twin brother, thus he was called Didymus, which means double, or even the word Thomas, which means double as well. Some people would say that this refers to his double-mindedness and the doubts that he had and the confusion he had regarding conviction on the one hand and disbelief on the other. But others would say no, that he actually had a twin and thus he was called, quote, Didymus, the twin. We do know that he, like the other disciples, failed to understand what Jesus was doing and what Jesus was doing with his life and with his death. In fact, on that night before the crucifixion, remember when Jesus was with his disciples out in the garden of Gethsemane, or in the upper room, it was Thomas, remember, who said, Lord, we don't know where you were going. How can we know the way? To which then Jesus responded, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. It was Thomas who asked that question, that lack of understanding being hinted to, not knowing that Jesus was the way, not knowing what Jesus was going to do, not knowing where Jesus would be. That understanding of what Jesus was all about and what he had to be doing to be doing the business of his father led to an outright panic, of course, later that night, as we'll recall from last week, when in the Garden of Gethsemane, he, like all the rest of the disciples, forsook the Lord and fled in disbelief. Certainly all of them at that point of time entertaining their doubts. For some reason... Thomas wasn't with the rest of the doubters on that first night after 
Our Lord had risen that first Easter Sunday evening when Jesus appeared to the ten disciples in that closed room that we heard about in today's reading. Perhaps he just felt the need to be all alone. Who knows? Maybe he felt he had to be all alone to absorb the, the hurt and the anger that he felt, as so often some people are inclined to do. Perhaps he was angry and so disturbed with the events that he had seen transpire that he just wanted to go to Gethsemane and pound his fist against some olive tree. Who knows? Perhaps he had resolved to put it all behind him as people so often do with a bad chapter in their life when they've determined they've made some wrong decision, that they had followed some wrong scheme or plan, and that he was deciding at that point in time how he was going to pick up the pieces from three years back and start all over again. Perhaps he had come back just to tell the rest of the disciples goodbye when he comes finally a week later into the upper room. Whatever, when he finally did come back expecting to see them all sitting around long-faced, fearful yet of the Jews and what they might do to them, He's greeted not with the somber sense of defeat that he thought he would be, but instead Thomas is greeted with the unbelievable news. Thomas, we've seen the Lord with our own eyes. We've seen him. He's risen. We've seen him. And what's Thomas's response? He's not going to invest his emotions, not again in this pie in the sky, imaginations, and the hallelujah hallucinations of these guys again. He had done it once, and it seemed that he had been badly mistaken, and so he says, no. In essence, he says, don't, don't play your games with me. Unless I see in his hands the prints of the nails, unless I place my finger into the mark of the nails, and unless I place my hand into his side and can feel it for myself, I will not believe. Thomas demanded indisputable proof. He demanded empirical verification, incontrovertible, tangible, touchable evidence. He wouldn't believe without it. The tales of historical women, or hysterical women, were not enough for him anymore, not, not, not now. The ghostly apparitions of his fellow disciples would not be enough for him, not anymore. In fact, he wouldn't believe even if with his own eyes he saw it. No, he wanted to confirm what he might see with his own eyes, lest it be a hallucination fooling him. He wanted to be certain that he would confirm it even with his own sense of touch. Unless I see those nail marks in his hands and put my hand into his side and touch him, I won't believe. He wanted to be doubly sure. He wanted to be certain. Now for this unbelieving reaction, what is it the future ages would call Thomas? A fool? A dullard? A doubter? More charitably, we call him a skeptic? In fact, German ancestors in the Middle Ages used to have a symbol for Thomas. It was a braying donkey. The symbol representing 
this apostle, a donkey, stubborn disbelief, and thus ridiculing his stubborn doubts. And granted, the unbelieving of, unbelief of Thomas is nothing of which to boast. It is indeed something about which to be concerned, but there were indeed many in the Middle Ages too who made the donkey, the unbelieving donkey, a symbol of St. Thomas. There were many in that day and age as well who considered the resurrection of the dead to be something that might even be quite unbelievable. In fact, Luther, in his funeral sermon for Frederick the Wise of Saxony, that one man who more than any other protected Luther from the papacy when his life was at stake, Luther said at his funeral, at the funeral of Frederick the Wise of Saxony, he said, to say that all humans who have died and were buried from the first to the last of them are to be raised from the dead in one moment at the end of time is certainly sounds very strange to many. Nay, it seems indeed to many to be impossible. Our reason, he says, sees that one is reduced to ashes by fire and another is thrown into the water and another is torn to bits by wild animals, and a fourth is devoured by ravens on the gallows. In short, who can tell or who can imagine the many and the strange ways in which humans perish throughout all of the world? And yet, in one moment, all of these are to stand alive before the last judgment? If you ask human reason to explain this, you will never believe it. But then God will prove his divine power. God will prove his majesty. And thus he did, Luther says, when he created the heavens and the earth with one single word out of nothingness. He spoke only one word. And immediately they stood there. And so it will be at the resurrection at the end of time. So you see, the seven-day doubting of Thomas was nothing so unique. It wasn't unique to Thomas because all the other disciples had doubted and they had fled as well. It wasn't unique even in the Middle Ages, and I dare say that there are far more doubting Toms today in this scientific, in this materialistic, humanistic, secularistic world than there ever perhaps has been in the history of mankind. Am I too bold to suggest that every one of us, indeed, at one time or the other, has entertained doubts about the resurrection of Christ from the dead? Am I too far afield to say that all too many could be charged with 21st century doubts and would thus be able to be labeled 21st century Thomases in one way or the other? Perhaps if you haven't doubted intellectually in your mind that Christ has indeed risen from the dead. We would thank God that that hadn't been a doubt that one had entertained, but even if we've doubted that, haven't we really doubted it sometimes in the way that we live? Because if we would believe, indeed, that Christ is raised from the dead, then why in times of temptation do we cave in all so often? Why? Because we don't draw on the power of the presence of the risen and living Lord Jesus Christ who has promised to give us the strength that we need under every temptation to resist. And yet we cave in. Why, if we believe in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and believe that he is right here with us, how is it then that when we're seriously ill, 
We're so inclined to bitterly think that if Christ were really alive and living, then he would never let this happen to us. Or when we're tired and when we're depressed and when we're disappointed, we mope about so helplessly that we would think that our God was dead. Sort of reminds me of Luther's wife, Katharina von Bora. He lovingly called her, as many of you know, Kitty My Rib. Sometimes he referred to her as Selbander, which in the German means of the better half. Or sometimes when she might get a little bit testy, which she was prone to do, he'd call her my lord, Kate. He'd even call her Kette, the German word for chains, suggesting that she was trying to chain him in. During a very difficult period when Luther was burdened with many of the burdens of what was happening in the Reformation. He was, became a bit despondent with things, visibly troubled about things. And Katie endured his melancholy spirit for days, and then one day, after it had gone on for her at least too long, she met Luther at the door as he was coming home from the Wittenberg University. And she met him at the door, and she was dressed in the black dress of mourning. Who died now, Luther asked, when she approached him at the door. God died, Katharina said. Foolishness, woman, Luther replied, foolishness. And Katharina responded, it's true, God must have died, or Dr. Luther wouldn't be so despondent. It worked. He laughed, he learned, he remembered, he was reminded, even by his good wife, by what he would call Dr. Cates, that Christ lives, and because he lives, we will live also, and because he lives, we do indeed overcome. Why do we come here on the Sunday morning? To meet with and to hear from the living Lord Jesus Christ, not about a dead Christ, but to learn of the living Lord Jesus Christ, to hear him speak to us through his word, to receive his very body and blood living, in the bread and the wine of Holy Communion. We don't come to meet someone else's expectations. We don't come as though our coming is somehow going to merit something in the sight of a distant God. We come because God comes here, the living Christ here to meet with us. You see, all of us could be called all too often doubting Toms because we've all too often offended our Lord by entertaining and by living as though he had not risen. But look what happened to the original doubting Thomas. Our Lord doesn't leave us in that place of despondency or in doubt. He acts to indeed strengthen that faith that he creates within us. Look what happened to the original doubting Thomas. A week later, the disciples are gathered together in the same place. This time Thomas was with them, and our resurrected Lord in his patient and in his forgiving mercy met Thomas precisely on his specific terms, he reappeared to his disciples. He walked purposely over to Thomas, whose eyes must have been at that point in time as large as saucers and whose mouth must have been dropped agape. And he says to him, Thomas, put your finger here. He directs immediately the doubt of Thomas. Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand. Place it into my side. Go ahead and touch me. See that it is I myself and stop disbelieving, but believe. Overcome and humbled by what he had heard, 
What does Thomas do? The text doesn't tell us that he went ahead and touched him. He didn't have to anymore. He just falls to his knees, and you can imagine it, and he simply says, My Lord and my God. A beautiful, simple, concise, unambiguous confession of faith. Needless to say, Thomas missed no more meetings of the disciples with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, in the Gospels, we find him next having breakfast with the risen Lord on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. We find him worshiping. As Christ ascends into heaven, he's there on the mountainside with the rest of the disciples. Early Christian tradition tells us, in fact, that Thomas became the, quote, apostle to the east, proclaiming the living, living Christ even as far, tradition tells us, as India, where he was finally then martyred, confessing the faith, confessing the risen Lord Jesus Christ in India, and some Christians there today still call themselves Thomas Christians, to the honor of of the name of St. Thomas, who brought to them the gospel of the risen Lord Jesus Christ, whom he had called my Lord and my God, a doubter for one week, but a believer for the rest of his life. And now our lesson for today is not three cheers for doubt, not by any means. Remember, after Thomas finally saw and touched and heard and believed, Jesus chided him and said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me, Thomas? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And herein lies the blessing of our Lord upon us. We have not seen, as Thomas saw, and yet we do believe. By the grace of God, you believe. Thomas relied on his own physical senses, and because he did, he no longer had to have faith in the resurrection any more than you have to have faith that the sun is shining when you see it shine or you can feel its warmth of light. It doesn't require faith. The more the tangible proof, the less faith is needed. And small wonder that Jesus chided him. By grace you are saved through faith. And that faith that you have in the risen Lord Jesus Christ is, Scripture says, a gift of God to you. You are all sons of God through faith. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe, Jesus says. Faith created in you by the Spirit of God, faith sustained in you by his word and sacraments is what believes that all of your sins have been paid for on the cross of Jesus Christ, though you were not there to see it happen and to touch and to feel. Faith believes that he arose from the dead there were many who visibly saw him on the cross suffer and die. And yet they went away unbelieving, though they had seen it with their own eyes. There were those indeed among even the 500 who had seen him risen from the dead, of whom later the scripture would say, and when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some were doubtful, despite the fact that they would see him. You see, seeing isn't always believing. Faith is what it takes. A faith that's created and sustained within us by the Spirit of God. Faith that doesn't waver at every little blowing of an adverse wind. And many of us doubt in faith, though, throughout our lives will coexist. We're Christians, all right, but we're like the man who came up to Jesus in the Gospels and said, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. 
We're often like Peter, whose faith in Christ moved him to jump impetuously out of the boat and to start walking on the, uh, the water. Faith enabled him to do that. Faith in Christ, the object of faith, enabled him to do it. But then as soon as he saw the water about him and the waves ripping and roaring, then he started to go down. His reason and his logic took over and he began to sink. What are you doing? He must have said to himself, you know that you can't walk on water. And he found himself then sinking all because his faith in the power of Jesus wavered. All because he had put more stock in what he couldn't do than in what the risen Lord Jesus Christ could do. You see, even though faith and doubt can coexist, the mixture of faith and doubt together in our lives is by no means ideal. Doubt robs us of all that God would have us have. Luther gives us a good example of that in closing. Luther says, a wavering heart that does not firmly believe and does not firmly hold on to that which it receives, it will receive something, will certainly get nothing. Such a heart is like a cup, he says, that a, a man holds out in his hands, but instead of holding it, he moves it constantly to and fro. And it's impossible to pour anything into it, and though you want to do so, you would miss the cup, and you'd waste what you were pouring. And so it is with a wavering and an unbelieving heart, God would like to give us all that we need. But there we stand like foolish beggars, holding out our hat for gifts, and yet not holding it still to receive them, but moving it back and forth and to and fro. Today's gospel is what enables us then to hold our hand steady, firms up our wavering faith, gives us that strength that we need to hold our hand steady that we might indeed receive the very blessings of God that you here today receive. Lord, give us that blessed faith that trusts, though it cannot always prove, that faith that believes, though it does not always see. Come and receive even at his altar that which you don't see, but that which you certainly do believe. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.